This is a Federal News Network podcast. Earlier this year, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin gave a new task to the Defense Innovation Board to establish a national defense science and technology strategy. It covers 14 critical topics such as quantum science, hypersonics, and artificial intelligence. Well, it turns out spending on these technologies has been rising. That's according to analysis by Govini. Joining me with the latest, Govini's Vice President of Strategy, Billy Fabian. Billy, good to have you back. Hey, Tom. How you doing? Thanks for having me. And as we speak, the defense national strategy, the overall strategy for defense is just fresh off the presses. And you're finding that it includes a lot of these critical technologies, critical needs that were identified by that strategy and by the Defense Innovation Board. That's right. So we've actually had two. So we've had the national security strategy, which is issued by the White House and signed by the president, came out a few weeks ago. Um, And then just yesterday, the national defense strategy, um, which is released by the Department of Defense and signed by the Secretary of Defense, come out. And it does include these technologies, these 14 critical technology areas, as uh, a critical component to U.S. military advantage and competitiveness, particularly vis-a-vis China, going forward. Interesting. These are identified as critical technologies, but in many cases, they're not actually new technologies. Even artificial intelligence, which has really come out of the gates as a big effort, does go back in some sense to the 1960s. Ditto for hypersonics, directed energy, lasers have been around forever. Military-grade 21st century versions of all of this stuff, though, I guess we have yet to achieve. I think that's really the key is where the you know the antecedents go, go far back. It's that these technologies are are getting to a point in maturity um, where they're going to have potentially significant impact on the battlefield in national competition. I mean, we're already seeing some of this um, in the Ukraine with the use of, you know, autonomous and semi-autonomous unmanned vehicles playing a huge role. So, you know, it's that these these technologies will sort of define the future in ways that they haven't previously. Because it seems like whatever you read, the idea that missiles are going to be the main way that wars are fought as opposed to opposing armies. I mean, Russia's army, not much left at this point. And so what they're using is missiles of all sorts. And so there's missiles to counter missiles and so on. Same thing I've been reading about, you know, should there be some type of conflict over Taiwan? It's likely to be missile because missiles can keep ships at bay. So you need missiles to keep out the missiles that keep the ships at bay and so on. A lot of these things are missile related then. Yeah, I mean, so certainly I think your missiles will be another, you know, smart munitions will be you know, a huge part of any future conflict. But it's not just the, you know, the actual munition itself, right? It's the, that requires the ability to, to sense the environment, to identify targets, to get that information back to somewhere where it can be processed, parsed, and then to be able to make a decision to act and then effectively employ that munition against it, all like on a rapid, rapid timescale. Um, and I think, you know, interesting in, in you know, Ukraine, what you're seeing is you know, the use of sort of newer emerging technologies like drones to do the sensing. But what they're sending information back to is you know, conventional artillery systems that have you know, been around in some form or fashion for, you know, for centuries. Right. So sure. this combination of high tech and, and sort of traditional conventional capabilities where together the sum is greater than the, the part. These items doesn't necessarily represent gigantic levels of dollars, these new and emerging technologies, the hypersonics, the artificial intelligence. I mean, the big dollars are still on the metal platforms that carry all these things. And so you can be deceived that we're not making progress by what looks like small numbers in defense context. 
Fair enough. I think that's fair. So there certainly has been rising spending by the U.S. government in general and the Department of Defense in particular on these emerging technologies, you know, artificial intelligence being a a prime example. But the dollar numbers, you're right, are much smaller as compared to to large systems. Doesn't mean they're not making progress. You know, I think the the challenge going forward will be to to take the, the fruits of that spending and to scale them, to integrate them into the weapon systems, right, to, to, to make them so they're actually in the hands of the warfighter, um, as opposed to just, uh, you know, a research project or a prototype, you know, that they actually turn into real capabilities. We're speaking with Billy Fabian. He's vice president of strategy at Govini. And just review for us what types of spending patterns you have identified, Govini has identified in some of these emerging technologies. So it's interesting. So we looked over the last five years at all U.S. government uh, spending via contracts, grants, um, other transaction authorities, things like that. And what we saw is that spending on these 14 technology areas has essentially doubled, not quite, but almost doubled over the last five years. However, a good chunk of this spending in FY20 and FY21 was related to COVID research on vaccines, on treatments, on things like that, you know, billions of dollars, which, you know, is a good thing and, and certainly something the, you know, the government should be doing. When you, when you take away the COVID spending and just look at sort of the, the, the spending across these technologies areas outside of that, there's, there's sort of steady, steady growth over the last five years, not quite where it's doubled in five years, but, uh, but still steady, steady growth. Because in many cases, the technologies are known. They know how to make a laser beam that can cut through steel. I have a sample hanging in my studio. Trouble is integrating it into the platforms where it would be useful. So it's not so much a technological development, but how do we get this laser beam to be launched from something that fits inside a tank, a ship, or on a drone? It's almost engineering now more than basic research. I think it depends a bit on which of the sort of technology areas you're talking about. Certainly in some cases, you're spot on, Tom. In other cases, you know, the technology is much more nascent, so it's still in an earlier phase. In fact, when the Department of Defense talks about these, they generally break them down into a bit of like where they are in that development process you know, and, and group the technologies that way. And what's your sense of where we're still at the most basic level with a lot of learning to do about the technology itself? Yeah, I mean, I think probably quantum. That's the quantum sciences, quantum computing. That's probably the the most nascent of of the group. Right. And where are we most advanced? Probably directed energy, maybe, and hypersonics? Yeah, perhaps. I think those are two. In fact, the, the, the Department of Defense talks about those as sort of the ones with direct military application, right, as the ones that are most focused on military capabilities and, and less dual purpose. You know, certainly there's prototypes of, of directed energy weapons, prototypes of hypersonics. So, you know, those those are moving moving along quite uh, quite a bit. You know, some of the sort of advanced communication type things are, are relatively, relatively advanced too. And in the last round of major technological leap forward for the United States, which was probably about 50 years ago when stealth technologies came in, when guided missiles, true precision guidance, which had been a dream for 50 years before that, the other nations didn't have that stuff. But nowadays, it seems like the technology of these, the latest ones are much more diffuse around the world. And China talks about their lasers and their hypersonics, et cetera, et cetera, their artificial intelligence and quantum. So what's your sense of what the nation has to do so that the next adoption of these latest things really does give us an advantage that can last for a while. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two interesting things that are you know different from the Cold War, which some of those technologies that you reference were you know uh, uh, were developed because of the Cold War, right? Even though some didn't come to fruition until after its conclusion. Is one you know the Soviet Union, except in a few niche areas, was never really a technological peer of the United States. We always had a distinct technological advantage. Um, also, that you know, the competition was really about who could develop uh, the best weapons, right? And you know, some technologies that were developed to make those weapons then had civilian application. The difference now is one, the technologies are much more diffuse. China is much more of a technological um, peer than the Soviet Union ever was. And many of these technologies are dual use and are the, the cutting edge, the state of the art is being driven by the commercial sector. And the challenge for, for the United States is to more in many ways is to U.S. government is more is to more readily adapt those technologies that the commercial sector is producing for military use or defense use. Yes. And one of the charges from Lloyd Austin back in February, I think it was, to the Defense Innovation Board was to examine how well the military works with venture backed companies. The idea being that those are the startups and they have the latest and greatest ideas. They talk about it a lot. Do we know how well the Defense Department has been able to to bring in and inculcate those companies and their technologies? Yeah, I think it's it's there has been some progress, but it remains uh, a significant challenge, as the, the secretary noted, which you know, why he gave the Defense Innovation Board this task. There's been a lot of laudable efforts through things like tech accelerators and incubators, um, the use of you know tools like other transaction authorities to try and reach these companies. But I don't think we've done well enough. So looking at these advanced technologies, when we looked at all the vendors the government has been partnering with on these you know, only 4% were either venture capital backed or private equity backed, which is, you know, a pretty, a pretty small number if, if these are indeed the, you know, the parts of the U.S. economy that are the most innovative and are leading the way on these technologies. Of course, if the U.S. venture backing 99% of the companies are how to deliver food better or some, something yeah. like that, probably <laughs> maybe 4%, that's the whole field that could help the Defense Department. Perhaps. I think there's probably quite a bit of places like in artificial intelligence for one, right? Where, where applications that they are developing for the civilian sector with some modification would be, be useful for, you know, for the military, right? Not necessarily a missile, but in things that help you process information, make decisions, conduct activities more autonomously, those sure. types of things, right? Have, have a lot of utility. And now it looks like we'll be able to kill the enemy with autonomous electric tweets. Billy Fabian is Vice President of Strategy at Govini. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to our podcast version wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University. 
and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. 
But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. 
I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.